Good morning to you. Oh, that was good too. You were better than nine o'clock even. That, that's good. I guess you're more awake than nine o'clock, but that was great. How are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? How many of you did New Year's resolutions? Can I see your hands? It's a pretty pitiful group in this group too. It was pitiful at nine and not, not, many, not many New Year's resolutions anymore. It's like we don't sort of don't do that anymore, but you know what it's like when New Year's comes. You go, you know, I wonder how this year is going to be a little bit different. You know, what's, you know, what's, you know, what's this year need to, to uh, have that, you know, the past year didn't have, what do I need to do differently? Um, and I sort of do unofficial New Year's resolutions. I don't tell anyone. I don't want to be accountable to anyone, you know, but I, I, uh, I sort of have them in my mind. And, um, I, you know, it's funny. Why do, why do we make them? Why do I make them? And I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm already 68 years old, but I'm still looking for ways to improve my life. I, I, I want to get better in some areas. I, I want to get better. And, and, you know, what better time than the New Year's? Now is the time to do it, right? There's a verse in Romans 7 that I think sums up my New Year's uh, resolution uh, efforts. I know that nothing good lives in me, Paul says. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good. You know this verse? The desire to do it, but I cannot carry it out. So, you know, I, I have different areas in my life that I want to improve. One, one is uh, the physical area. I, you know, I've always tried to, you know, let's stay in good shape. Let's get in better shape. Let's exercise more in the new year. Remember, <laughs> Uh, years ago, my, my office was right around the corner from, from a, a trainer at a, at a, a little gym there. And um, it was called Bodies by Mahmood. And Mahmood was the trainer. And uh, he, uh, he got to know me because we were proximate in our offices. And I, and I, uh, I started training with Mahmood. And I, for a while, I had a body by Mahmood. Can you tell? Uh, and I, I was so excited about it. I was, you know, I was really working out every day. I was lifting, pumping iron, doing really cool things. But... It just sort of fell off after a while. I want to get better psychological shape. I want to have less stress, more emotional health. I want to get better financial shape. I, you know, I want to get serious about my budget, really save, really have some, 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 some better budgeting methods and, and use my money in a, in a better way, better, better steward of my finances. I want to have better relationships, be in better relational shape, better marriage, better relationship with my kids, friends. And spiritual shape. Uh, two years ago, I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit this year to, to really getting serious about some work in terms of, um, you know, some spiritual things in my life. Richard Foster has this wonderful book, Celebration of Discipline. And I thought, yes, that's what I'm going to I'm going to be disciplined. And, and I've started it. There are 12 wonderful chapters, 12 disciplines in that. I got through the first two, but I wasn't disciplined enough to get to celebrate at the end of that. I just, <laughs> just fell off. What is that? Here, here's, here for me, I don't know about you, this is what I think it is. I, I want to get better, but I want to see results now. You know? I don't want to have to wait. I want to see, I'm an American. I want to see results now. So this is why my efforts to improve fail so often. I, I fall short not only of my own expectations, but I, I just don't see results right away. So Paul goes on in Romans 7, he says, For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And I figured it out. I'm, I think I'm going about this the wrong way. I think I'm doing this the wrong way. So the text we're going to be looking at today has, has some good news. There, there are some things that you can do and that I can do that, that we maybe shift this a little bit. 
And it's about someone who stumbled upon a fail-safe way, not only to life change, but a change that was not, and, and not only dramatic, but it was immediate. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. It's in your bulletin, so if you have your Bible, you can open to that. And uh, we're going to look at this text. We're going to begin with verse 1 of Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So here we are. Uh, we're in the latter stages of Jesus' ministry. He's just days away, really, from uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Last Supper, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But he's in a city that's about 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is, is, an, is an ancient city. Uh, I had the privilege of going to Israel the first part of this month. Uh, we were there from, from May 1st through May 10th, and uh, we went through the West Bank going north to south. And sure enough, uh, over to our left, to our east, was the town of Jericho as we got closer to the Dead Sea. And it's still there. It's still a functioning town. And uh, it was a functioning town back then. It was a, as, as the writers of antiquity tell us, it was a beautiful city. It had spring, natural springs in it. It had a natural source of water. It's a really big deal uh, in that part of the world. Uh, it was described as a place with, with luxurious palms. And, and uh, it was a crossroads uh, uh, in, in, a, in a manner of uh, trade. Uh, traders would come through there. Uh, they, they were big in terms of myrrh and balsam that they, that they uh, would... Um, uh, have there at that, at that area and they would sell it. And there it was in this city at this time, a custom house, a custom house that would, uh, the, the travelers through Jericho would have to go to and all the merchants would go to periodically to pay their taxes. And Zacchaeus was the man who was in charge of this custom house. He was the chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was over many tax collectors. It's sort of like multi-level marketing in tax, okay? And uh, here he is, and he's the guy who is in charge of making sure the taxes are collected. Now, uh, as many of you, as we reminded many of you over the past weeks, this is a, a city that was controlled by Rome. The Roman Empire had infiltrated this part of the world. Uh, they were in charge, and the Romans had two purposes in terms of when they came in and conquered a territory. They wanted to make sure that that territory would remain peaceful and subjugated to them, and they wanted their money. They wanted to collect taxes to keep the government running in Rome and, and all, the, all the purposes they had. So in the process of that, they uh, encouraged and, and, and garnered men who were of in that culture, in the culture they conquered, to, to be the people that they would have to collect their taxes. So they franchised their tax collection out to the locals, and they gave them the authority to collect taxes, and Zacchaeus was the man. Zacchaeus really, in a sense, had a double strike against him. He not only was pretty unpopular because he was the guy who was going to take the taxes, but he was the guy who was uh, complicit with the conquering armies of Rome. He was the guy that, that, that helped support this repressive system. He was not a man who was well-liked. And you know what the ultimate irony is? Ultimate irony of Zacchaeus, you know what his name means in Hebrew? It means pure, pure. 
And I, you could just hear the, 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 uh, the derisive ways that he was talked about. Let's go talk to Mr. Pure and pay our taxes, right? This is not, this is not a man who is, who is very well liked, but it, Scripture says, Luke's very clear, he's wealthy. He's got substance. He's got money. We, we live in a uh, divided and ju judging culture, do we not? I think, I think um, the past few years have been extremely divisive in our country. We, we, we fall along label lines. Are we Republican or we're Democrat? We're, we're male or female? We're, we're religious or irreligious? We're, we've, we're, we have certain racial preferences, ethnic backgrounds, all, all these things. Uh, red state, blue state, we're, we're all in the process, and I have to include myself in this. I, I'm quick to judge other people and categorize. I, 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 I pigeonhole people way, way too, too soon, way too early. You, oh, you're just saying that because, and then you have the reason behind it, without even knowing the person, without even really understanding who they are. When we did this tour of Israel, we uh, went with another couple who were friends of ours. We didn't uh, have any one that was organizing. We just went online, found a tour company we, that we liked and liked what they had to say, and, uh, and we found a tour that we wanted to go the time of the year. And this tour was, uh, we wanted it because it was a smaller group of people and it was a, what they called a slower tour, okay? It was slower. You know, we've heard, you, you, we've heard of these tours, you know, where you have to hike 10 miles in the desert and we just didn't want to do that. So this was the slow tour and, and uh, we showed up. So I just, we just knew this other couple, my wife and I, and, and so we had uh, 19 other people on this tour, and, and the first night there, we're watching these people come in. We're trying to figure out, okay, who's gonna be on our tour? What are these people gonna be? We're gonna spend 10 days with them on a bus and walking around and having meals with them. And, um, and people started to come in, and I'm, I'm looking at these people, and they're, they're really old people. This is not a slow tour, this is a sedentary tour. You know, I, I, I was really, I'm going, oh man, there, there, are people, there are three canes that I counted. There was, there was a woman who came in in a wheelchair and, and uh, I'm going, wow, you know? And all of a sudden, you know, it's interesting. I just start, start judging these people. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is gonna be very much fun at all. And I, one thing good about it, I felt really young I, I, I felt like a whippersnapper, you know? I was just like, yeah, you know? These, they're, the, the, the woman, the oldest woman in the wheel, she was 97 years old. It was just, uh, and I'm going, wow, how are we gonna do this? Interesting, isn't it, how we judge people? Zacchaeus was a man who was judged. Pigeonholed. We know what he's like. No good. Luke. And I love Luke for this. Luke has been called by scholars and commentators. Luke, Luke is the gospel of forgiveness. Luke is the gospel where Jesus, Jesus interacts with people and he's presented as the friend of outcasts. People who are disenfranchised, people who are marginalized. Luke's very careful as he, as he, as he describes Jesus calling Levi or Matthew, the, the tax collector who is the disciple. And Jesus would, would, would eat with sinners. He, 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 he would go to Matthew's party. People would go, what kind of person does that? What kind of religious person does that? He, he associates with, with women who, who were disenfranchised. Uh, he he, he uh, allows a prostitute to come and anoint him at a, at, at a meal. And people talk about that. Gentiles, centurion at Capernaum. I mean, it's, uh, Luke is replete with people like this, children. 
people that were marginalized and disenfranchised. And the parables, parables of the lost coin, lost sheep, the lost son. And, and Luke, Luke gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the Samaritan who was despised in Israel, but is the one who had the heart to heal the man who, who was bleeding by the side of the road. And here we come to a real life situation in Matthew 19, Zacchaeus was one of these people. He was despised and he was an outcast in his culture. But Zacchaeus did three things, three things that are very simple points that I wanna make and things that spoke to me as I read this and tried to apply it to my life. Three things that caused him to experience dramatic and immediate change for the better. First one you find in the verses we read. First one is this, Zacchaeus watched for Jesus. That's the first one, he watched. Man there was, my name is Zacchaeus, chief tax collector. He was wealthy, he wanted, verse three, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. You can just, you can just picture this. Luke 18, latter part of the chapter, Jesus, it says Jesus is coming into Jericho. There's a blind beggar by the side of the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. He goes over to him, he heals him. This blind man can see there's a huge stir. People are excited. Here's Jesus coming. He's done another miracle. People are talking. People are crying. There's a press. That's the Greek word. There's a press around him. And he's trying to make his way. And there's this crowd, layer upon layer of people crowding around him. And Jesus... Uh, as, as, he, as he goes through this, is, is just taking his time walking through uh, Jericho, and Zacchaeus can't see him. And you can just see this man, this man who people don't like that much, and he's just sort of on the outskirts of this crowd. He's, he's small of stature. He, he's not tall. He can't see over, and he's going, I'm, he's going to go through, and I'm not even going to get to see him. I just want to see him. So he watched for him. It, it, Luke says that he ran ahead. In this culture, men, especially older men, and he probably wasn't, you know, I would imagine he's a man at least in his 40s. Men, men just did not, it was not dignified to run in public in that culture, but he runs ahead of this crowd and he does the most unthinkable thing when you think about it. He climbs up in a tree. Now, when's the last time any of you climbed up in a tree? Really, think about it. It's been decades since I climbed a tree. I'm glad I can climb stairs, folks, I'm telling you. <laughs> and this man climbs up in a tree. Remember climbing trees? I, there was a silver maple in the, our backyard in the house I grew up in. In summer days, I'd go up there, there's this, this beautiful connection of, of, of branches about 20 feet up in that tree. I'd just sit there, just a natural seat, and I would just sit there for for sometimes hours, it was just nice. It was nice to be up above. And, and uh, something about being in a tree that, that, that elevates you and isolates you. I remember people would walk by, you know, on the sidewalk below and I'd call their name and they'd look around, they couldn't find who was calling them. I thought that was pretty cool, you know, it was just like, yeah. And I'm pretty sure Zacchaeus thought, you know, I'm gonna be up in this tree and uh, I'll get to see him, but I'll just get to separate myself a little bit from the crowd. He watched. Watching takes energy. It takes act. Watching is not passive. And this is a passage where I think we are called, as we apply it, to watch for Jesus. It takes energy. 
My son was 17. He was uh, playing soccer for his school, and I went to one of his practices. And when it was over, he, he had driven his car, I'd driven mine, and, and uh, he said goodbye. And I thought he said he'd be home. He was coming right home. And uh, this is about seven at night, and, and uh, got home around 7:30. My son didn't didn't he didn't show, and uh, was a little bit concerned. Half hour went by, eight o'clock, 8:15, 8:30. Now I'm concerned. And I thought he was coming right home. Uh, this is in the mid-90s. We didn't, this is funny, mid-90s, we didn't have cell phones, no mobile phones in the mid-90s. I really feel old saying that, but that's true. So he started calling all his friends, friends we knew. Their numbers, Chris there, is Chris there, is Chris there? No, no, no. Now I'm worried. Now I'm thinking, do I have to call the police? Do I have to call hospitals? I'm, I'm, I'm very, very concerned. Nine o'clock comes, and nine o'clock, I couldn't sit anymore. So there, we lived in a cul-de-sac at the time, and, and I knew he, the route he would have to come in if he, if he made it home. And I remember going on walking that sidewalk a mile up to the turn where he'd have to turn in. And I walked that a couple times just because I, I was watching. I was watching. 9.30, I saw that red Chevy Sprint finally turn in, and, and uh, he had miscommunicated. He was a friend that we didn't realize. He didn't have his number. And uh, one, of the, one of the young men who was in the, he was about 10, who was in the first service came up. He was very concerned if he got punished after he came home. And I, I said, no, he did not. I was just glad he was okay. You know that feeling, watching. Zacchaeus is watching. I don't know what his reasons were. Maybe he was just curious. Maybe he had a deeper motivation. Maybe he had a deeper motivation that he didn't even realize, but he watched. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot. So here's the crowd. Here's the crowd coming through Jericho. There are hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, but there's certainly hundreds of people. This huge crowd, this is a stir. And Jesus making his way down this road, all these people, and he stops at the tree. He stops. We, we saw uh, these sycamore figs when we were in Israel. They're beautiful trees, big leaves. They have, they have branches that come really close to the ground. It's not a very difficult tr tree to climb. But I'm sure he scooted up a ways. And Jesus stops at that tree. Jesus reached a spot. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. He welcomed him gladly. First point is watch. Second point is welcome. We need to welcome Jesus. Zacchaeus came down at once. He yielded to Jesus' will immediately, and he welcomed him gladly. An often heard parenting complaint I hear quite a bit is, is the complaint, hey, you know, my kids, I tell them what to do. I ask them what to do. They have chores and they don't do it right away. Why don't they do it when I tell them to do it? It would be so much easier not to tell them five, six, seven, eight, nine times. Not here. Zacchaeus came down immediately. But he not only welcomes Jesus. I love that Luke puts this in. He welcomes him gladly. What does that mean to welcome Jesus gladly? I'm pretty sure Zacchaeus knew that he was an incomplete person. Something was missing. And most likely at this point in his life, he knew that his present direction in life would never end in fulfillment. He had based it all on his wealth. If he couldn't have any kind of other stature or any kind of, uh, any kind of, uh, of affirmation from his culture, he knew he'd have enough money to survive. But here is this man, this man Jesus, 
and somehow for him it came all together as if a lightning bolt had struck him. And here was someone who could take him out of his discontent, the outcast, from being despised to being honored. Honored why? Because this man, Jesus, stopped and says, you're the man that I want to have fellowship with. And in that culture, when you have a meal with someone in that culture, it means that you are honoring them and they are honoring you. There is a relational component to every meal that people had together that was very deep and, and, and very binding. And so Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his mess, the mess that his life was. And he welcomes him gladly. I like the word gladly. Have you ever had, have you ever had maybe relatives at, at, at holiday time that, that you welcome them, but you don't welcome them gladly? You, you, know, you know who those relatives are, right? It's that uncle that's a little annoying or, you know, I don't want to be too negative here. But it's one thing to welcome someone, but it's another thing to welcome someone gladly, to embrace them. Zacchaeus was a happy man. He had joy. Jesus says, Revelation 3.20, as John's on the Isle of Patmos and the Spirit comes and Jesus is speaking through him to these seven churches and one of the churches he says, look, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens that door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him, to, to sup with him, to, to have a meal with him. And Zacchaeus is now in this place. And it is transformational. This man goes from, from being confused and probably a little bit angry and disillusioned to all of a sudden he's honored. It's an immediate transformation. So first point is what? Zacchaeus did what? First one? Watch. Thank you. That was really good. Better than the nine, by the way. Okay, let's say it together. First one was watch. Second is welcome. Good. The third is he worshiped Jesus. He worshiped Jesus. Verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can you imagine? Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't know who he's talking to. It's a sinner. But Zacchaeus, verse 8, stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. And I love it that he uses that word, Lord. He immediately elevates Jesus to the appropriate place. And he gives him the affirmation verbally that he needs. You're, you're, you're my Lord. And then he goes on to say, Here and now, immediately, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because, and he's turning to the crowd, this man, he's telling everyone, this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So an essential element of true worship is the act of relinquishing our false gods saying, hey, you know what, I, I no longer elevate this as being the, the primary focus of my life. This is what I'm living for. And those false gods can vary. They, they can be our toys, the things that we think are important in life, the things that give us, the things that give us pleasure. It's our addictions, our, our self-centered relationships, our lust for wealth, our professions that we elevate to, to an unhealthy degree. 
And to worship truly is, is to acknowledge Jesus as the one, the one who is worthy, the only one who's worthy of our worship. So Zacchaeus not only says, Lord, with his words, and it's one thing to use words, and I like that, but he, he worships him with his actions. Too many times we, we, can, we, we sort of buttonhole worship as be singing and praying and, and doing what we're going to do later on with communion, but worship really is how we live our lives. It's not just what we say, but it's what we do. And he worships Jesus with his actions. He says, look, he says, I've got way too much money. Half of it's going to go to the people who have greater need. And I'm going to make restitution for my sinful behavior, and I'm going to give back four times what, whatever I've defrauded someone. Dramatic and immediate change. What area of your life does, does God want you to relinquish to him? What is it that's standing in your way of your true and abiding and, and, and fulfilling worship? What are you wrongly worshiping? Years ago, a man came into my office. Um, his wife sent him there. I always like it when the wife sends the husband there. It's always an interesting time. And so he's looking at me going, okay, I'm here. What, what, what am I here for? And, and I, you know, I just started talking to him. And he's a dear guy, um, very successful in his business, uh, good, good husband, good, good father, but just a little bit wrongheaded in terms of his direction and, and really struggling with, with addiction to alcohol, which he knew and had readily admitted. But didn't really want to relinquish. You know, and I asked if, what he wanted to do. He said, well, I'm willing to work on it. And we made another point, never showed up. Until, I, I think it's just, I saw him about three years after that, came back. Came back into my office with his wife this time. They had a situation with one of their children. They wanted to get my advice on and that, and, and he was different. This man was different. And um, we began to talk, and I, I stopped right in the middle of, uh, you know, what we were talking. So, wait, so what's happened to you? There's, there's something different about you. What's, what's going on? He said, well, he says, I'm not drinking anymore. I said, well, that's really good. I said, how'd that come about? He said, <laughs> he says, I met Jesus. And he talked about the spiritual transformation he had as he came to faith, real faith, abiding faith. And you could see it on his face. You could hear it in the tone of his voice. And as we began, as we talked further, you could see it in, in, in how he was living his life. It's transformational. Jesus changes people's lives. And I love this today, salvation has come to this house, and as Jesus turns to the crowd, this too is a son of Abraham. What, what did that mean? Why did Jesus do that? Why did he say those words? Here's this, this Jewish crowd who, who's with him, and, and uh, there are a lot of very religious Pharisees, Sadducees, people that are really concerned, uh-oh, he's doing it again. He's going to the, one of those disenfranchised, those sinners he doesn't know. He's going, no, you don't understand. Because son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of, of the Jewish nation, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was the man of faith. And what Jesus was saying to them is, 
that faith has come to this man and he is now a son of Abraham. And I think there was a second thing in there too because what Jesus was saying, you looked on the outside, but I looked on the heart. You, you, you put him in a category and dismissed him. But there's a story there that goes deeper. And I think he was saying to them, look, you need to see people as God sees them. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We went through this tour. We began this tour together, and I began to get to know these people. Um, the 97-year-old woman was, was, uh, had her son and, and daughter-in-law and uh, two grandchildren and one of the grandchildren's spouse with her. They were just a wonderful family. She was such a delightful person. Uh, she never skipped a beat. She went with us everywhere we went. They pushed that wheelchair in places you wouldn't believe a wheelchair would go. And she was, she was, she was always ready to go and, and, and there uh, when, when we needed to be. And I got to know there's, there were four widowers on this tour, all older than me. And D.L. was one of them, 87-year-old man. I sat with him on the Jordan River where, where people were being baptized. And we just sat together and told me a story. D.L., who's got, you know, he's got a little bit of Parkinson's that he's dealing with and, and uh, lost, his, lost his wife four years previous, told me about how he cared for her and loved her and how he loved Jesus. <laughs> so quick to judge people and put them in categories. I was reminded of C.S. Lewis. He was talking to a group of people and he was in church one day and he didn't like hymns. He said there were fourth-rate poetry set to fifth-rate music. He was really negative on hymns. <laughs> and then he says, I'm, I'm there standing, I'm singing, and, and uh, sort of half-hearted. I look over to the pew next to me, and there's an, there's an older man singing with all his heart, meaning every word of it. And, and uh, he says, I look at his shoes, his elastic-sided boots, and I realize I'm not even worthy to, sh to, to clean those boots. This is a man who loves Jesus. You want a dramatic and immediate change in your life? Salvation is the necessary first step in spiritual self-improvement. And it, sanctification takes a lifetime. Salvation takes a point-in-time action. And salvation can come to your house today. And if you are already, you've experienced that, that spiritual renewal can come to you. You can reconfigure as well. It can come to your house today as well. You need to watch for the one who brings salvation. We need to welcome him and worship him with all our hearts. Watch, welcome, and worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your heart. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your acceptance and your willingness to Forgive by giving the most precious thing you had, your very life. And I pray that as we use the rest of our time here to, to worship you through communion, that, that you would remind us of, of our need for you and that you would renew our gratefulness and that you would allow us to take the next steps that we need to take to make sure that you are Lord of our lives 
and that we are doing, not just saying, but doing the things that will bring you honor and glory. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death, your resurrection, and the gift of salvation you give us. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.